Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Navy of the American Revolution, written by Charles Oscar Pollan and published in 1906. This story details the American Navy of the American Revolution. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, thank you to all the new patrons that are now pledging a monthly contribution towards the podcast. John Dibbling, thank you so much for your generous monthly patronage. Jamie Embry, thank you also for becoming a new patron. And thank you to existing patron Anne Spurgeon for increasing your monthly pledge. Thank you to everybody who took the time to leave a comment in Spotify. Your thoughts and comments are truly appreciated. For those who listen on iTunes, thank you for continuing to support the podcast. Shout out to iTunes listener 19631-222 for your lovely review. I'm glad that you're getting the rest you deserve. Thank you to CastBox listener Jordana for your lovely review. I'm glad the podcast helps you let go of the day and drift off into sleep. If you appreciate the podcast, I'm grateful for wherever you listen, regardless of which music player or podcast app. If you find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review as it is extremely helpful in allowing me to reach more people who deserve rest. Even one sentence really helps out. As always, the podcast is completely free and it's thanks to your support that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. You can also say hello to me there and let me know what you think about the podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the ratings. The Navy of the American Revolution. Its administration its policy, and its achievements. A Dissertation by Charles Oscar Pollan Preface 
several narrative accounts of the Navy of the American Revolution have been written. These usually form the introductory part of a history of the American Navy since 1789. The earliest of these accounts is that of Thomas Clark, published in 1814, and probably the best, that of James Fenimore Cooper, first printed in 1839. Later narratives are rather more popular than Cooper's. Many sources of information which were not accessible to the earlier writers and were not much used by the later, were drawn upon in the writing of this book. Moreover, the information that is here presented is of a somewhat different sort from that of previous writers, and the method of treatment is new. This book is written from the point of view of the naval administrators, Hitherto, historians have written from the point of view of the naval officers. Their narratives treat almost exclusively of the doings at sea, the movements of armed vessels, and the details of sea fights. They have the advantage of dealing primarily with picturesque and sometimes dramatic events. Their accounts, however, lack unity, since they consist of a series of detached incidents. In the first place, an attempt has been here made to restore the naval administrative machinery of the revolution. The centre of this narrative is the origin, organisation and work of naval committees, secretaries of marine navy boards and naval agents. Next, inasmuch as the men who served as naval executives administered the laws relating to naval affairs, and indeed often prepared these laws before their adoption by the legislative authorities, it was thought best to give a fairly complete resume of the naval legislation of the revolution. Those laws with which the naval administrators were chiefly concerned have received most attention. The legislation with reference to prize courts and privateering has been treated more briefly. As the privateers do not, properly speaking, form a part of the Revolutionary Navy. No attempt to write their history has been made. In order that the subject may be seen in its true relations, some statistics and other interesting facts concerning this industry have, however, been introduced. An account of the state navies is now given for the first time. Since naval committees, navy boards and naval agents issued written orders to the naval commanders prescribing the time, 
place, and manner of their cruises. It has seemed logical and proper to consider the naval policy of the administrators and the movements of the armed vessels. So detailed an account of naval movements as would be given by those writers who proceed from the point of view of the doings of the naval officers would obviously not be expected in this book. My plan has been to describe the various classes of naval movements to present the sum total of their results and to give briefly the details of a few typical cruises and sea flights. The cruises of the American vessels were much alike. They were minor affairs, and many of them scarcely merit individual treatment. It is evident that one who proposes to write the history of the Navy of the American Revolution from the point of view which I have described, will not only avoid excessive detail in respect to individual naval achievements, but will be particularly determined not to allow their brilliancy or their dramatic quality to fix the amount of detail with which each shall be narrated. For instance, several historians have been inclined to dwell at some length upon the brilliant and picturesque achievements of John Paul Jones. Sometimes they have devoted more than one-third of their narratives of the Continental Navy to this hero. Undoubtedly, the greatest naval officer of the Revolution As a result, the pictures which they have presented are somewhat distorted, and many brave sea officers have had scant justice done their gallant services. An attempt is made in this book to present a better balanced narrative and to make a juster estimate of the work of the Revolutionary Navy. The scope and method of treatment adopted by the author has compelled a certain economy of phrase, precision of statement, and sharpness of outline. I am very grateful to the many persons who have assisted me. Space does not permit me to thank each of them by name. I am under special obligations to the librarians and officials of the Library of Congress, the Library of the Department of the Navy, the Bureau of Rolls and Library of the Department of State, the State Library of Massachusetts, the Office of the Massachusetts State Archives, the Boston Public Library, the Boston Athenaeum, the Library of Harvard University, the State Library of Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Historical Society, the State Library of Connecticut, the Connecticut Historical Society, 
the Pennsylvania Historical Society, the State Library of Virginia, and there are many others to thank, but I do not have time. I have had the advantage of Professor Jameson's extensive knowledge of bibliography, his fruitful suggestions as to treatment, and his painstaking care in reading and criticising my manuscript. Parts of the narrative, somewhat popularised, have appeared in the proceedings of the United States Naval Institute and Siwane Review, Washington, D.C., March 1st, 1906. Chapter 1. The Naval Committee. The history of the Continental Navy covers a period of 10 years, extending from 1775 to 1785. During this time, the Continental Congress made many experiments in naval legislation and devised several organs of naval administration. The first of these organs, with whose origin and work this chapter is concerned, was the Naval Committee. It lasted for only a few months. Its lineal successes, each of which will be duly considered, were the Marine Committee, the Board of Admiralty, and the Agent of Marine. These four executive organs, for the most part, administered the Continental Navy. Certain odds and ends of the naval business, however, fell to the Commander-in-Chief of the Army and his officers, and to the American representatives in foreign countries. The second chapter will treat of the fleets of the army, and the closing chapters of the narrative of the Continental Navy will consider the naval services of our representatives in foreign lands. In maritime countries, the military service is generally ambidextrous. Whether the army or navy is first brought into play at the opening of a war depends upon various circumstances. The presence of a British army at Boston, already on colonial soil, when the American Resolution broke out early in 1775, naturally led to the immediate organisation of an army by the colonists. The need of a navy was at this time not quite so insistent. Moreover, the building or even the purchase of an armed fleet required more time than did the raising of an army, which was rendered comparatively easy by the previous training of the colonists in the local militia. Nevertheless, since both countries engaged in the war were maritime, the creating of a navy could not long be delayed. 
the reader recollects that by the middle of 1775, the battles of Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill had been fought. A continental army had been organized, and Washington had been commander-in-chief. Outside of Congress, the agitation in behalf of a continental navy had begun. That the first suggestions and advances for a navy should come from New England, where the concrete problems of the defence of her ports and coasts were being faced, was to be expected. One of the first men to make such suggestions was Josiah Quincy, of Massachusetts. On July 11th, 1775, he wrote to John Adams in Philadelphia that the best method of securing coastwise navigation of the colonies was by row galleries. He then continued, as the whole continent is so firmly united why not a number of vessels of war be fitted out and judiciously stationed so as to intercept and prevent any supplies going to our enemies? And consequently, unless they can make an impression in land, they must leave the country or starve. The first formal movement in behalf of a continental navy came from Rhode Island, which state was during the summer of 1775, suffering serious annoyances from the British ships. On August 26th, her legislature instructed the Rhode Island delegates to the Continental Congress to use their influence at the ensuing session of Congress to obtain a fleet for the protection of the colonies. On September 2nd, 1775, Washington, in order to prevent reinforcements from reaching the enemy at Boston, instructed Nicholson Broughton to proceed in the schooner Hannah on a cruise against the British transports. That the question of providing a continental navy would come up during the fall session of Congress was certain. The arguments in its behalf, which were made almost unanimously later in the session, must have been on the lips of several of the members when they assembled in Philadelphia in September. An army had been organised. Why not a navy? The situation of the combatants, separated by the Great Atlantic Highway, and their character. One a great naval and commercial power, and the other with maritime interests by no means inconsiderable, would necessarily make the impending struggle in no small part a naval one. America had sea coasts and seaports to be defended, a coastwise navigation to be secured, and above all, 
commercial and diplomatic communications with foreign powers to be kept open. These communications were a jugular vein, whose severing would mean death to the United Colonies. The urgent and specific calls for armed vessels, which were being made, must be met at once. Had not America conveniently at hand materials for ships and abundant men who had the habit of the sea? In the early months of the session, there certainly would arise opposition to the new military project. The inertia and conservatism of some of the members would set them against so great an innovation, to others the fitting out of a fleet, at a time when the length, seriousness and meaning of the war with the motherland were but half unveiled, would seem an unwise and hasty action. The question of procuring a fleet of armed vessels was first brought to the attention of Congress on October 3, 1775, when the Rhode Island members presented their instructions an account of which will be given in a succeeding chapter. It is sufficient for present purposes to say that until December, the Rhode Island instructions had little other result beyond crystallizing and clarifying opinion on naval affairs by means of the debates which they used in Congress. On October 5, Sundry letters from London were laid before the Congress and read. They conveyed the intelligence of the sailing of two North Country-built brigs of no force from England. On the 11th of August last, loaded with arms, powder and other stores, for Quebec without convoy. Congress at once saw the importance of capturing these two vessels in order both to deprive the British of these stores and to obtain them for the Continental Army around Boston, which sorely needed all the munitions of war it could get. A motion was therefore made that a committee of three be appointed to prepare a plan for intercepting the two brigs, and that it proceed on this business immediately. John Adams in his autobiography says that the opposition to this motion was very loud and vehement, and included some of his own colleagues, and also especially Edward Rutledge of South Carolina. It seems to have been recognised that the carrying of the motion would be the initial step in the establishment of a continental navy. Such an undertaking its opponents declared, with a greater display of rhetoric than judgment, was the most wild, visionary, mad project that ever had been imagined. It was an infant taking a mad bull by his horns, 
and what was more profound and remote. It was said it would ruin the character and corrupt the morals of all our seamen. It would make them selfish, piratical, mercenary bent, wholly upon plunder, etc., etc. The friends of the motion, in colours equally glowing, set forth the great advantages of distressing the enemy, supplying ourselves and beginning the system of maritime and naval operations. On the taking of the vote, the motion passed in the affirmative, and according to John Adams' recollection, he, John Langdon of New Hampshire, and Silas Dean of Connecticut, three members who had expressed much zeal in favour of the motion, composed the committee. A little later on the same day, this committee reported, and thereupon Congress decided to write a letter to Washington, directing him to obtain the Council of Massachusetts, two of that state's cruisers, and to despatch them on the errand of intercepting the two supply ships. It also directed that letters be written to the governors of Connecticut and Rhode Island, asking for the loan of some of their armed vessels which were to be sent on the same mission. The committee appointed to prepare a plan for intercepting the two vessels bound to Canada made another report on the 6th, which was ordered to lie on the table for the perusal of the members. This report was acted upon on October 13th, when Congress decided to fit out two armed vessels, one of ten and the other of fourteen guns, to cruise three months to the eastward for the purpose of intercepting the enemy's transports laden with warlike stores and other supplies. A committee consisting of Silas Dean, John Langdon, and Christopher Gadsden of South Carolina was appointed to estimate the expense which would be incurred in fitting out the two vessels. In four days, this new committee reported an estimate which was unsatisfactory and was recommitted. When it again reported on October 30, two more vessels, one to mount not more than 20, and the other one not more than 36 guns, were ordered to be prepared for sea, and to be employed in such manner for the protection and defence of the United Colonies, as the Congress shall direct. It should be noted that the two vessels for which provision was now made were to engage in the defence of the colonies, and not merely in the interception of transports, an indication of an advance in the naval policy of Congress. Four additional members were now added to the committee, Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island, Joseph Hughes 
of North Carolina, R. H. Lee of Virginia, and John Adams of Massachusetts. This reconstituted committee, composed of seven members, was sometimes called the Committee for Fitting Out Armed Vessels, occasionally the Marine Committee, but most frequently the Naval Committee. It secured for its use a room in a public house in Philadelphia, and in order that there should be no conflict between its meetings and those of Congress, it fixed its hours from six in the evening until the close of its business. Its sessions were sometimes pleasantly continued, even until midnight, by controversial diversions marked by a rich flow of soul, history, poetry, wine, and Jamaica rum. John Adams, who always wrote pungently, has left us a lively picture of the Naval Committee. His description makes it clear that the deliberations of this committee were not always marked by that exalted seriousness and impassive dignity which we too habitually ascribe to the Revolutionary Fathers. The pleasant part of my labours for the four years I spent in Congress from 1774 to 1778, he said, was in this naval committee. Mr. Lee, Mr. Gadson were sensible men and very cheerful, but Governor Hopkins of Rhode Island above 70 years of age, kept us all alive. Upon business, his experience and judgment were very useful, but when the business of the evening was over, he kept us in conversation till 11, and sometimes 12 o'clock. His custom was to drink nothing all day, nor till 8 o'clock in the evening, and then his beverage was Jamaica spirit and water. It gave him wit, humour, anecdotes, science and learning. He had read Greek, Roman and British history, and was familiar with English poetry, particularly Pope, Thompson and Milton, and the flow of his soul made all his reading our own, and seemed to bring to recollection in all of us all we had ever read. I could neither eat nor drink in these days. The other gentlemen were very temperate. Hopkins never drank to excess, but all he drank was immediately not only converted into wit, sense, knowledge and good humour, but inspired us with similar qualities. The active life of the Naval Committee lasted from October 1775 
until January 1776, during which time it laid the foundations of the Navy. Its chairman in January 1776 was Stephen Hopkins. Whether he was the first to fill this position is not known. His knowledge of the business of shipping made him particularly useful to the committee. The accounts of the Naval Committee were kept by Joseph Hughes, who was settling them with the Board of Treasury in September 1776. Early in December 1775, John Adams returned home, and by January, only four members of the committee were left to transact its business. In October, Congress ordered the fitting out of four vessels and appointed the Naval Committee, but did nothing more. By the 1st of November, the sentiment of Congress was setting strongly towards organising a navy in its debates on the state of trade during the latter half of October, the necessity of having a navy in order both to defend the colonial commerce and to carry on the war was generally recognised. The members from the South were as a rule now lining up with those of the North in behalf of a naval armament. Events had happened and were daily happening in New England, which were convincing the doubtful members of Congress. As a military necessity for conducting the siege of Boston, and with no intention whatever to create a navy as such, Washington had obtained seven small cruisers, and either had sent or was sending them to sea in pursuit of the enemy's transports. The logic of events had forced him, on his own responsibility, to create a little fleet of his own. With the passage of each day, the gap between the mother country and her revolting subjects widened, and the feeling became stronger and more general that an irresponsible war, which must be fought to just a conclusion, had begun. What in October seemed chimerical might in November appear practicable. Beginning with November, the naval legislation of Congress moved rapidly, the duty of preparing much of it naturally fell to the Naval Committee. Its work in large part may be found in the journals of the Continental Congress for November and December 1775 and January 1776. A brief summary of the most important congressional resolutions for this period will be here presented. On November 2nd, 1775, 
Congress voted 100,000 for the work of the Naval Committee and empowered it to agree with such officers and seamen as are proper to man in command. The four vessels already ordered to be prepared for sea. Congress also fixed the encouragement of the officers and seamen at one half of all ships of war made prize of by them, and one third of all transport vessels. That concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, but I also hope that you're falling asleep and feeling a little drowsy. Until next time, good night.